Well, good morning, Seacoast. So great to see you. I want to welcome you to church this weekend. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Josh. I serve as the lead pastor here at the church, and we're glad you're here. If you're watching online, if you are watching in your bedroom, still in your pajamas, we love you too. Uh, we're glad you're here. If you're at one of our campuses, we're excited to have you as well. I want to celebrate. We had a great weekend last weekend celebrating the, the risen Christ and Easter, which was amazing. Um, saw hundreds of people give their life to Christ, and we're going to celebrate that with baptism this weekend here and at all of our campuses. And so again, if you uh, are coming ready to be baptized, great. If not, just know that we're prepared for you. And so we'd love for you to make that decision and step today. But we had some record attendance. Uh, I don't know, when we came through the pandemic, I think we kind of wondered, did we build this place too big? And after seven services over Easter and almost 50,000 people across our network, it was just an amazing time together um, to see God rebuilding uh, his church and advancing his kingdom. Somerville campus, uh, we're glad you're here. They had over 3,000 people in Somerville alone and uh, amazing, amazing stuff happening around here. I get the, the privilege of introducing our speaker today, and, and I was thinking, how do I do that? And I thought I would ask you a question. How many of you know somebody, you have a friend in your life that has disrupted your life in major ways? Any of you? Okay. Uh, I could talk about Christine's bio, which, which is forever long, the books that she's written that have impacted our lives. Uh, she speaks all around the world. Uh, she's spoken here many times, so she's really not even a guest for us. She's family but when I think about Christine and Nick Kane, and Nick is here as well, I think about the way they've disrupted our life. We met them 13 years ago, first time she spoke here at Seacoast. At the time, I was the Mount Pleasant campus pastor. My wife was uh, working in the emergency room out at Trident Hospital. She was a physician assistant, and we were pretty happy with where our life was going. Then we met the Canes. A year later, Lisa had quit her job at the hospital and was working full-time with Nick and Chris, and their efforts, they had just recently started an organization called A21 Campaign, where they were working to rescue girls who had been sold as sex slaves and were being trafficked around the world, 27 million people being trafficked. And we heard about this vision and what they were doing. And, and when you're making friends, it's good if you get along, which we did. We had a great time together. It's even better when they're on mission uh, and they're making a difference. And so we just kind of got involved in that as a church and then personally as a family and have watched what has gone on. It's just been amazing. Honestly, this week while we've been doing our thing and going to work and doing our thing, there, there have been girls that have literally been rescued and taken out of slavery and been set free because of the work that the A21 campaign is doing around the world. Not to mention the laws that have been changed, the people who are in jail now, that the laws weren't even written to put them in jail. Just all the work that they've done has been amazing. And, and they've been a disruption uh, in the best sort of way. They've taken us from a place of comfort to a place of faith. And, and so I just wanted to prepare you, uh, rather than going through her incredible bio, get ready to be disrupted because that's what she does in the best way. Would you guys help me welcome Christine Kane as she brings the word to us? church. How y'all doing? You can be seated as you're seated. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're the best looking thing I've seen all morning. Okay, now turn to your second choice and say, you're actually better looking than the person on the other side. That's... Nick and I so love Pastor Josh and Lisa. And um, 
you know, A21's been happening for 15 years, so Lisa and I, we started right from the outset 13 years ago. The East Coast office, uh, you see, I'm, we're taking a little bit of time to tell you about it because your church has been such an integral part um, of A21 since our formation. So we started 15 years ago. This was the first office in America. And um, it is astounding. Who would have thought uh, that God would do this? That, you know, we just came back from 12 countries, but we have offices now in 19 offices in 15 countries. Thousands of people rescued, hundreds of traffickers in jail, and hundreds of millions reached with a message of awareness and prevention. And I just want you to know you, through Lisa and the team here, have been such an integral part of that for the last 13 years. And we currently have 31 um, girls in care and cases that we're dealing with just in Charlotte. And so you've got to know this is in your own backyard. And um, you're so pivotal and instrumental in helping to uh, stop that. And I am here with the single most ravishing piece of masculine flesh on planet Earth. And last week, Nick and I celebrated 27 years of marriage. Is that? Oh, there he is. He's a keeper. And we have two daughters. We have Catherine Bobby and Sophia Joyce. And they, are, they don't look like this anymore, but they haven't done updated family photos. And so I've told them, this is the only way I can threaten them, that I'm taking this photo and putting it up everywhere I go until they agree to more recent family photos. So this is how they looked about four years ago. But Catherine's 21 and Sophia is 17. So if you are uh, single and love Jesus and rich. Um, you could come and <laughs> see me unapologetically. Since my kids were born, I'm like, you are the head and not the tail. You're above only and not beneath. You're a leader and not a follower. You're a woman of God. You're a woman of prayer. You're a Holy Ghost terrorist. You love the house of God. You love the word of God. And you're going to grow up and marry a very, very wealthy Christian man. I told them. <laughs> for the, I've spoken that over their lives constantly. So please come and see me. Um, I like the South. My husband is number 14 of 15 um, children. Every chick in the room just now crossed her legs. You should have seen that. It was awesome. I didn't think you'd be surprised about that in the South. But anyway, so she, um, so his mother had like 15 full-term pregnancies in 17 years, which is just no television in that part of Australia. And, um, and so... <laughs> My mother-in-law did not think you were a chick until you like popped out 10. And so I would take Catherine and Sophia to my mother-in-law's house and say, this is Catherine and she is the alpha and this is Sophia and this is the omega and this is the beginning and the end of my childbearing years. And so I started at 35 and had my second at 40. So man, you want a purple heart at that point. You are not looking to do anything else. So anyway, which is also, I had my second at 40, why I need a very wealthy son-in-law. I'm just putting it out there to the brethren to help us out. So you can tell that this place is family for us. And um, when you've been coming somewhere for 13 years, the first 10 years you're a visitor, but now I'm just part of the furniture. So um, if you don't understand my accent, you should listen to yours. So... <laughs> all I'm saying. It's all I'm saying. We're going to turn to the scripture because some of you are very nervous. And so let's go to the gospel of Luke this morning. I believe I have an assignment from the Lord and, and we're going to leave this place full of faith. I'm believing that. The scripture says in Luke 7 verse 1, when he had concluded saying all this to the people, now we're talking about Jesus, had just finished preaching the Sermon on the Mount. When he had concluded saying all this to the people who were listening, 
He entered Capernaum, a centurion's servant who was highly valued by him, was sick and about to die. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, requesting him to come and save the life of his servant. When they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy for you to grant this because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Jesus went with them and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself since I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word. Everyone say, say the word. You'll sound very American. Say the word. (laughs) Say the word. Okay, we will say the word. See, I speak how the queen wishes she spoke English. We're still going to try to tell King Charles how to speak English, but you ought to know about this because you threw the tea out in Boston and said, peace out England, but some of us were still part of the colonies, and so this is, we stay on point, Christine, you're very naughty, this is the heathen service, you could tell, you could tell. The 8.30, they were the Christian service. But now, here we go. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go and he goes, and to another, come and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Jesus heard this and was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, said, I tell you, I've not found so great a faith even in Israel. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant in good health. It's amazing to me that Jesus had just finished preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He's coming back to his ministry headquarters in Capernaum and he's greeted by some Jewish elders and the text is already a little bit unusual because it talks about a centurion. Now, a centurion was like a captain of the Roman army, had about 100 men under his care and centurions were placed strategically throughout the villages and towns and cities throughout Israel, and they were there only for two purposes, to collect taxes and keep the peace. Now, as you could imagine, that's not a great way to win friends and influence people. Nobody then or now likes the people that collect taxes. And so they were despised. They weren't particularly liked. And he had a servant, that word would be more like a slave, which was very typical of the culture of the time. And they were considered to be dispensable. It really didn't matter if they were sick because they were just dispensable and we would just like replace them with someone else. So we know there's something a little bit unusual about this centurion because he had a servant and scripture tells us that he actually cared about him. It actually mattered to him that this servant would be made well, that he would be healed. So we can see that he was a a compassionate man. He also was a very generous man because the Jewish elders came to meet Jesus and they said, this man is worthy for you to do this for him because he built us a synagogue. Now listen, it is not very often that someone of another faith, I mean, this is a Roman centurion, he's a Gentile. He is paying for a synagogue to be built for the people of God. The thing I do love about this is never, ever limit who God can use to get to you what He wants to get to you. He can use anyone to get you built what you need built in your life. So don't limit God by how that might you might think that has to happen. And so he's obviously a very generous man because he built a synagogue. And not only that, he's, he's a very humble man because when Jesus was coming to heal his servant, he's like, hang on a minute, you don't need to come in. I'm not even worthy. I mean, he could have said, I'm a centurion. You're a Jewish rabbi. We're occupying, we're the occupying force in this place. We are, you know, over you. But no, no, no. 
he saw something about this man, Jesus, that said to him, I am not worthy. I might have the political power. We might be here and have overtaken your nation, but the fact is I'm not worthy. All you have to do is say the word. There is something about you. There is something about you. You just have to say the word and my sick servant will be healed. And the Bible says that Jesus marveled at this man's faith. Jesus marveled. That word in the Greek is thavmazo. That word is used 43 times in Scripture, but there are only two times that the word thavmazo is used in relation to Jesus, only two. And this is one of those instances. And that word to be astounded, to marvel, to be astonished. I mean, what is astonishing to me is that the word thavmazo, the word marvel, would be used in reference to Jesus even once. I mean, who would think that the God of the universe could marvel at anything? This is the God that created everything. He spoke, let there be light, and there was. He knows the beginning from the end and everything in the middle. And yet, according to this text, there is a kind of faith that is available to the people of God. There is a kind of faith that causes the God of the universe to marvel. He marveled. He marveled at this man's faith. This morning, church, we're about to learn what faith is from a Gentile from a Roman centurion, from someone that should not have faith. And we're about to see what happens to the familiarity of the faith of the people that are supposed to be followers of Jesus. And it might help us to understand a little bit of what's happening on the earth in 2023. So the Roman centurion had a faith that caused the God of the universe, God incarnate, Jesus, to marvel. And when God marvels, people are healed. When God marvels, people are delivered. People are saved. Things turn around. So Jesus marveled, the centurion servant was healed. We're gonna see the one other time in the scripture where that word thavmazo, marvel, was used in response to Jesus. Both of these instances have to do with faith. And I pray that God awakens something in us today. Go to Mark chapter six. Everyone say Mark. Mark. <laughs> I'm going to teach you some Aussie now. Everyone say, Mark. Mark. Now you sound like Aussies, okay. One more time, Mark. So that's how we say awesome in a very refined, dignified way. We say awesome. Everyone say, awesome. you're very posh here in South Carolina. Everyone, awesome. Okay, now say it like an American. Selah. You just think. Mark chapter six. <clears throat> he left there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished. Everyone always marveled when Jesus taught. Where did the, this man get these things, they said? What is this wisdom that has been given to him and how are these miracles performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary? And the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And aren't his sisters with us, here with us? So they were offended by him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives and in his household. He was not able to do a miracle there. I want you to hear this. This is Jesus. 
I'm not saying this, the Bible's saying this. He was not able to do a miracle there, except, I like this exception, that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now, we would call that a revival Sunday in church. But this is called, like, he really wasn't able to do much, except he did this, but there was so much more he could have done. And look at this. And he was amazed. In Greek, that's thavmazo. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Twice Jesus marveled in the New Testament. Twice Jesus marveled. Both times had to do with faith. And he marveled once at the faith of the person that should not have had any faith. The Roman centurion. He marveled at his faith and healed the servant. And then he marveled at the unbelief of the people that should have been believing him. He marveled at the unbelief of the people that should have most thought that God could do what he says he could do. That God is who he says he is. And he wasn't able to do what he wanted to do in their midst, not because he couldn't, but apparently there is an unbelief that restricts how much God's going to do in our midst. God can do whatever he wants to do. He is God. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He can do whatever he wants to do. But there is an unbelief that can stop the work of God happening in the way that God wants it to happen. And Jesus marveled at their unbelief. There is a familiarity with Jesus that breeds a lazy in our faith and the place where we should see the most signs and wonders and miracles and things turned around is in the house of God and amongst the people of God but it is often the unbelief of the people of God because of the familiarity with Jesus and we're always going to have church so I don't know if I'll go this week or not Oh man, this sort of familiarity with this kind of worship which in 2,000 years of Christendom most people have never been in the presence of familiarity with the kind of service that we get to have and, and the fact that we can even have baptisms today and still be able to have them publicly. The fact that we can take communion and still be able to do it publicly. Oh, we can get so familiar with everything and so familiar with what we have access to and so familiar with the Bible that we don't even read it because we've got 20 of them at home. So familiar that we no longer come expecting God to do anything. As long as I just get my parking spot and have my good seat and there's decent coffee, thanks very much. But I think every Sunday, Jesus will leave our services, 40, however many hundred thousand churches in North America today. He's at them wondering and he's gonna be amazed and he's gonna marvel. The question is when we finish today, will he marvel at our faith or our unbelief? Is he going to be thinking, I could have done so much more at Seacoast this morning. If people came believing, so many more could have been delivered and saved and healed and restored and reconciled and so much more could have happened if the people of God were not familiar with the things of God. But believed me, I wonder whether Jesus would be amazed, Thavmazo, with our faith especially after the last seven years, the last three years. 
so many pull back, gone on the defensive. We started out in faith, we got a few hits. The world's been cray cray. I mean, it's all normal in South Carolina, but I live in California, so it's all cray cray. The whole world's cray cray. And it's like the people of God are so punch drunk. We forgot to be fighting the good fight of faith, fighting a lot of fights, but all the wrong fights. I'm talking about an internal posture that believes that God is who he says he is, that God can do what he says he can do, that God can turn things around and God can save and deliver and heal and restore and reconcile and work on our behalf, that God is everything that he says that he is. Man, in our cultural climate, it's just a bit better to dumb it all down. I mean, we're in a very secular, humanist, rational, postmodern, post-Christian, post-everything. We're so posted, we're posted into orbit. We're very post-everything. Everyone's scared of being canceled. And we're spending more time trying to impress each other than cause the God of the universe to marvel. We're trying to be amazing with one another that we're no longer amazing God with our faith. And then we're wondering why we're not seeing signs and wonders and miracles because, man, we're just too busy cropping and curating our public profile that we're no longer cultivating any private intimacy with God that would cause a faith to well up within us and stir up that gift of faith that would cause the God of the universe to marvel. And when he marvels, he does miracles. There's a lack of faith. The issue on the earth, it's not ultimately political or economic or sociological or moral or environmental. Not ultimately. Ultimately, what we have is a faith crisis. We've got too many unbelieving believers. We need some believing believers that believe that God is who he says he is and that God can do what he says he can do. That's where change and transformation comes. We need some amazing faith. Now, it's challenging It's a lot easier to have cultural Christianity than true faith, especially when you're living in a very hostile Western culture that is very antithetical to the Christian gospel. What do you mean, Christine? Like, how can you believe this book? I mean, what? what, what, I mean, Christine, don't you? you, Surely you're way too educated to believe this. Sure, sure. I mean, Christine, it's so problematic. I mean, look at these texts on genocide and look at women and oh my gosh this is look at the Christian sexual ethic and this is just like Christine surely you're too smart to believe that this is the inerrant word of God I mean people don't think you're right in the head if you believe this stuff Christine what do you mean Jesus is the only way to God I mean that's a bit exclusive isn't it I'm like he said it I didn't he said I am the way the truth the life no one in Greek Hebrew and Aramaic no one comes to the father but by me he said it Oh, that's a little bit exclusive. Christine, you cannot, with your degrees and education, truly believe. I mean, I mean, Mary, I mean, you know, like, did you fail biology, Christine? What do you mean, immaculate conception? Listen, I told my daughter before she went to college, I went, sweetheart, I believe in an immaculate conception, but I believe there was only ever one in history. Don't come home trying this out on me like this. It's not... You're not going to tell me it's an angel. It's not going to fly. I just want you to know I didn't fail biology. I mean, last week we had Easter. We're talking about a resurrected Savior. I just need you to know whatever your tradition is, whether like, you know, you're like Presbyterian, Baptist, Pentecostal, everything in between. The one thing that unites us all, the linchpin of the Christian faith 
is that some dead Jewish guy rose again 2,000 years ago. In case you're wondering, that's not normal. There's nothing normal about thinking that. You're already weird if you believe that. So here's my deal. Since we're already weird, why don't you just embrace all the weird? Jesus still heals today. Jesus still delivers today. Jesus still speaks today. Jesus still saves today. I'm like, y'all, there's nothing normal about this. So try to be cool. And trying to blend in with culture and let's change our doctrine and let's change our thing so we can go with the flow. I'm like, it's never going to be cool because the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing and a stumbling block to the rich. It will always be that way. Therefore, we preach a Christ crucified, buried, resurrected, coming again. And we live in resurrection power, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, believing for signs and wonders and miracles in our midst. Christine, that's a bit foolish. I know. We stand on the shoulders of foolish people throughout 2,000 years of church history. It doesn't change in 2023 because Elon can send rockets to the moon really regularly. Suddenly our faith isn't gonna fit in a test tube and be able to be proved (laughs) because faith is predicated on trust, not understanding. And when you're trying to stick it in a test tube, stick it in a mathematical formula to prove to an unbelieving world that this thing makes sense, it's never going to do that because it's a faith. It's the essence of what we do. We walk by faith and not by sight. The righteous will live by faith. The life I live in the body, I live by faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We are a faith People, you never graduate from faith. We don't become too cool for school. Faith is what underlies our whole Christian faith. You cannot be saved on your own. We are saved by faith, by grace, through Christ. It's the faith that God gives us. So we live by faith. What we need in the church is a faith revival. We need some people to begin to believe God again, to begin to step out in faith again. And some people go, well, Christine, I'm just not trustworthy, or I'm just not someone that can readily trust. Faith is not a personality thing. You don't suddenly have like a faith number on the Enneagram. It's not a faith thing on the disc profile. Faith faith is not a personality type, it's a blood type. It's the blood of Jesus Christ of Nazareth who died for our sins and rose again. That puts faith in our heart. And some of us, have been like the people in Mark chapter six in the midst of the things of God and we no longer believe God. We go through the motions. We might even do spiritual disciplines, but we haven't believed God for years. We haven't stepped out in faith for years. We're not walking by faith, we're walking totally by sight. We're not living by faith, we're living totally by our natural means. And in our cancel culture, we've been playing defensive, not offensive, lest we're canceled. So we've pulled back. And it's the spirit of the age. And the enemy has unleashed a spirit of fear that is antithetical to faith so that the kingdom doesn't continue to advance. So what does it mean? It means we've got to take some risks. After the last three years and the last, it's time to risk again, church. That's what the Lord said. It's time to risk again. Now, you can't stay safe and risk at the same time. Look, I come from a very risk-averse, staunch Greek family. 
My, my mother was just like not into taking risks. I mean, she would say things to us like, kids, you can't go skiing or you'll die. I, I mean, literally. There, there was no middle road. You couldn't go skiing to ski. You were going to die. And so whatever we did, so when we moved to America, um, you know, there were five families from Louisiana all good friends of your pastors. And, you know, we had just kind of met them all. And so I thought, now I'm living in America. I'm far away enough from my mum in Australia. I could go skiing. You know, I was like 40-something. I could finally do. The Greek kids are really scared of their mothers. Okay, so um, we go. We went up to Colorado to go skiing. And it was during the Winter Olympics. So this is how I learned to ski. I would watch the Winter Olympics at night. And then I would get up the next day and I would think I have a moral uh, obligation to represent Australia amongst all of these Americans. And so I don't know what I was doing and all the guys are on these black runs and I'm on the green flat slopes with the three-year-olds that are learning to ski. So one day, you know, um, Dino and, and all these guys from Louisiana, they're wanting to take Nick on this black double diamond kind of thing. And I said to Nick, I want you to come with me on the green slopes. And um, so all his friends are doing the fun thing and he's with me and the three-year-olds on the little green slopes. And I say to him, I go, babe, if you were with Dino and the boys right now, you wouldn't be having any more fun, would you? Now, of course, anyone that's been married for 14 seconds, you know that if your wife asks you a loaded question like that, if you wanted any action that night, there is only one answer, only one answer at that point. So Nick, who is Nick, says to me, if I was with Dino and the boys, Christine, this is literally what he said. He goes, I would be having much more fun. <laughs> Not just more, much more. Okay, that's like, you've got to know me. That's like a red rag in front of a bull. So I look over my shoulder and I turn my skis. There was like a blue track there. I look at him and I went, well, babe, eat my snow. And I put my skis facing downhill. I start going down. I knew I was in very serious trouble about 20 seconds later on my second somersault that was not intentional when I heard the loudest pop, pop, pop. And I snapped my ACL, tore my MCL, tore my meniscus and fractured my knee. And Nick had to get, you know, they get the ski patrol. They come and they put you in that bag like a coffin and you go down the mountain. That was me with everyone pointing. Now, I'm Greek. So I, every time I left my house, my mother would always say, Christina, are you wearing good clean underwear? <laughs> to which I would always say, Mom, what do you care about the condition of my underwear? Because Christina, if you have an accident, anyone else's mother? You do that in the South as well, yeah. So if you have an accident and you end up in the back of an ambulance, you've got to be having good underwear. To which I would always say, Mum, number one, I'm not believing for an accident. Number two, if I end up in the back of an ambulance, I don't care about the condition of my underwear. Now, because this is not the women's conference and it's church, I'm going to give you the PG version. So as they were uplifting me into the ambulance, this is all I'm going to say. My mother was right. That's all I'm saying. So, and then I'm telling you this whole story for this reason. My mum goes to me. I have the surgery. I have a hamstring graft. I mean, anyone that's done that kind of surgery knows the agony of the whole deal. So my mother calls me and she goes, Christina, I heard you had an accident. I'm so glad you had an accident because I told you, if you go skiing, you will die. <laughs> that's the kind of house I grew up in. Not one that said, you go take a risk. You go for it. And 
I grew up in a culture very antithetical to any kind of tall poppy, anyone stepping out. I mean, we grew up in Australia. My, my home, our nation, we would have sayings like this. See if you know it. You know, like, you can't have your cake and everything that goes up. Don't count your chickens. You all had a very negative Greek mother as well. So basically, here's the big deal. The deal is we were brought up, don't step out of the boat. Don't take any risks. Don't stand out from the crowd. Stay small, stay safe, stay comfortable. And yet we serve a God who calls us out of the boat, a God that calls us into risk, a God that calls us to take steps of faith. And we are in a pivotal moment in history where the enemy who hates the church of God wants us to pull back rather than step out in faith. But can I tell you, anyone in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation had to dare to look like a fool in their generation in order to do what God has called them to do. We don't get too cool for school. We don't get too slick. We will never fit in with our culture. We will never be ultimately accepted by culture. We're always going to be a people of faith, which means we are going to look somewhat unusual in the midst of culture. Let me give you some examples. How do you think Noah looked? when he was building an ark in a desert. Noah, what are you doing? I'm building an ark. What's an ark? I don't know. Why exactly are you building it? Because rain's coming. What's rain? Haven't got a clue. When people ask me about our ministry and our life and you know, I'm going, listen, I'm spending my whole life building arks. I don't know, because rain's coming. Haven't got a clue. Just out here in faith with God. No idea, but we want control instead of trust. Trust is predicated, uh, you know, faith is predicated on trust, not understanding. And in our very rational world, we wanna understand everything. That's not ultimately where it goes. How do you think Moses looked? He's got a million Israelites behind him. He's got a Red Sea in front of him. And everyone's like, Moses, what are we gonna do? He's like, I don't know, I've got a stick. If you ask any leader of anything, most of our life is like a Red Sea in front of us and an army trying to kill us behind us. It's like, I've got, it, I've got a stick. I need God to show up. I need God to part some Red Seas. You've got Sarah in the maternity ward at, or the maternity section in Target. And everyone's like, Sarah, what are you doing? I feel like having a baby. I'm only 90. They're like, Sarah, your eggs have dried up, honey. Viagra has not been invented. I don't know what you think Abe's doing. You know, I mean, like there is like, I knew the heathen crowd would like that. So there you go. It's freaking out. She looked like a fool. How did David look? Nine foot giant, five stones. Some of you in business had a few hits. I feel like, man, it's another nine foot giant. I've got this few rocks. How do you think Esther looked? could have been killed, not summoned, but having to go and speak to the king and speak truth to power. How do you think Caleb looked? He's 84, 85. He's saying to Joshua, I'm not cashing in my 401k. I know we've done a lot. I know we've taken the promised land, but God promised me Hebron. There's no retirement. There's still Hebron. I don't know. 
How do you think Mary looked? Joseph, I promise it was an angel. How do you think Peter looked just stepping out of a boat? Like a fool? How do you think Paul and Silas looked singing worship songs in a prison cell? How do you think the woman with the issue of blood looked in a crowd reaching for the hem of his garment? How do you think the little boy looked? Five loaves and two fish. What part of that looks normal? What part of what we do do you think is going to fit into a formula and look rational to a world when it involves faith? And let me tell you, who looked like the ultimate fool? And we just talked about this last week. Jesus Christ hanging naked on a cross. People mocking and ridiculing. That's your king? That's your saviour? That's who you're gonna worship? I don't know whoever thought our faith was gonna look cool because nowhere in Scripture is there any precedent of we are culturally cool and accepted and that faith can be rationalised. So I don't know why in 2023, as we still await the second coming of our King, we're gonna think in any way that we are not gonna be required to live a life of faith. But let me just tell you something. When you do live that kind of faith, this is the kind of thing that happens. Because Noah might've looked like a fool, but Noah and his family, they were saved from that flood. And Moses might've looked like a fool, but that Red Sea did part and they were delivered. And Sarah might've looked like a fool, but she did give birth to Isaac. And David might've looked like a fool, but he took out that Goliath. And Esther might've looked like a fool, but she took out and she saved a Jewish genocide. And do you know what? Caleb might've looked foolish and old, but he did get Hebron. He got it and he took it. And Mary might've looked like a fool, but she gave birth to Jesus and that woman with the issue of blood might have looked like a fool but she got healed and that little boy's lunch, it did feed the 20,000 on the hill and Paul and Silas, they did get out of that jail and guess what? Jesus Christ, He did get off that cross, He defeated hell, He defeated death, He holds the keys to hell and death and my Bible says, church my Bible says that the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives on the inside of you and lives on the inside of me in 2023. You know what that means? Because of that, we can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens us in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Let me pray for us, Father. I thank You for Your Word and I thank You for the gift and the measure of faith You have given to Your people. My prayer for everyone under the sound of my voice in Seacoast online, in the room, in our campuses today. I would pray, Father, that today there's a renewed passion to stir up the gift of faith that you've given us. Lord, where people have been hit and have been playing defensive instead of offensive. Lord, let there be a divine turnaround today. Let faith well up in the hearts of your people. Faith to see marriages restored. 
Faith to keep trusting you to be obedient. Faith to see breakthrough in businesses. Faith to dream about the future and stop looking behind. Lord, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Come on, church. Can we thank God for Christine Kane? Can we thank God for the word that he deposited in our hearts today? Wow. What a powerful word. Just wave at me if you could feel your faith rising in the room. Well, this is our time in our service where we take a few minutes just to respond and ask ourselves two questions. One, what is God saying to me? And and two, what am I going to do about it? Because it's one thing to be inspired, but it's another thing to take action. And I know for some of you in the room, today is a day where you need to come out of hiding with your walk with Christ and take a step of action through baptism. Baptism is the way we identify ourselves publicly as walking with Christ. And if you know that's you today, I would love for you in the next two songs just to walk on out of the auditorium, go up to the baptism area. We've got t-shirts, we've got shorts, we've got everything you need to get baptized. But maybe, just maybe, your first step in taking action with this word today is by responding and going public in your faith with Christ. Some of you are in need of a healing today. You've been so afraid to say it out loud that you haven't even told anybody. Come on up to the front of the church. We do believe that the book of James is still alive and active, and it says if any one of you is sick, have them come before the elders of the church and pray over them, and they'll be healed. We believe that. Come on up to the front for prayer. You may need to go to the crosses to write down a prayer request, put it on the cross, receive communion, remind yourself that you were bought with a price. Let's take some time to respond together.